episode one, Gillian recollected her early life and told of how she was discovered in the south of France at the age of 14 by the legendary film director Roger Vadim. She talked about her first two films, Les Liaisons Dangereuses and Beat Girl, as well as playing tracks from her album, Lily. Gillian, it's lovely to speak with you again. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Yes. Well, listen, today I want to explore a bit more about your album, Lily. And let's start with the question, why is the album called Lily? Lily was a a name given to me by some friends. I'd met them on the beach. That was just when summer was beginning and kids were still at school, but... I sort of skived off because I wanted to be brown as opposed to white and horrible. And uh, there was this one girl who was arriving at nine o'clock sharp, exactly like me. And then she approached me. She said, do you want to sit next to me? I said, okay. She said, well, what, what's your name? I said, Gillian. In French, it would sound like Gillian. And she said, oh, that's too complicated. I'm going to call you Lily. And it became the first private secret that I owned because my mother would look through everything that I had. And I think her, her, her own life was probably not the one she wanted. So she probably lived through me. I don't think she ever knew about Lily. And so Lily was very important. Lily was really me. The album's called Lily. And of course, there's a track on it called Lily. Tell me specifically about this one and the process of writing it because we're going to hear it today. Well, Actually, Lily's, um, it's really a prayer. It's about freeing myself. And I said, I promise I will return. Allow me to swim. I will come back. And I say, oh, the sea is enormous, so there's no horizon. And uh, I imagine myself as a fish. I'm the breeze. And so Lily's dream will only come true when she gets to leave the tentacles of mother. Lily became a prayer. It was like the last thing that I had at night for myself. And I would say, Lily, and um, and just close my eyes and I was off. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really evocative. Let's have a listen to Lily. Lily. Now, Gillian, tell me about Carmine Vermillion. That is a very special period in life when you meet someone you fall in love with. You are very young. You don't know very much about the body. You go through a it's form a bit, for, I call it like the christening. You become from a girl, a young girl, the woman. Mm-hmm. It is about the Red River. That, that's how I call it. I don't know what it's like for a boy, but for a girl, 
I think it's at such an extraordinary moment. The important thing is to love the person, you know. So that is the very plain explanation of what it was all about. I just felt that I needed to talk about that because I don't think mm -hmm. anybody does. I think nowadays um, girls want to just go from childhood or teenager to womanhood immediately and that's as if, well, you know, I, I, I did it yesterday and right now I'm free. But I think in those times it wasn't like that at all. In my youth, it was like you were a person that should be ostracized. And frankly, I knew nothing about sex at all. My mother gave me a terrible book, um, which I gave back to her immediately. It was a tadpole with the most extraordinary, horrible face, huge oh, eyes, God. and it was <laughs> swimming somewhere in my intestines. <laughs> oh, and I gave horrific. it back. <laughs> I gave it back to her. And I said, I don't think I actually I'm interested in this thing. <laughs> and I had no idea what she was on about. And then I, I found a girl in my class because I asked. I was, um, I was 12 and I asked somebody, there is something that I don't know and I need to find out. And there was a girl in that class who was the most beautiful. She had an almond-shaped face. She was very tiny and she wore little shoes, pointy shoes, and nobody talked to her and I couldn't understand why. And then I did. And I went up to her and I said, look, her name was Poupette. It was like for a little doll. And I said, Poupette, I need some help. I need to grow up. I need to know what's what. And I have very, very good friends on the beach. They're two sisters. But they won't tell me anything. And I know it's important because my mother came to me with some horrible book. And she said, don't you worry. You come to me. And I went into the quarters where she was living with her mother, alone with her mother. And her mother was a prostitute. And she did one thing. She said to me, look at this book. And she took it from a shelf of books that she had. There was a living room and it seemed to me one bedroom. And she said, this is la paix respectueuse, the respectable prostitute in English. And it was written by Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a very well-known writer. Uh, it was like Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir during the war. He was a philosopher and he wrote a wonderful autobiography of himself called Les Mots, The Words. And um, she told me. And I left very, very grateful. But I was a different person because I knew that I had something in me that I didn't know of before. And I felt um, it was indescribable, the shame that I felt of having this gap in me. And I remember walking back home in a daze and then getting up to go to school was, I mean, to get out of the house. I, thank God I was about, well, about not even 10 minutes from school. So I ran, but I was very, very quiet. And uh, it, it hit me like a block on the head. And uh, it made me very frightened, specifically with, with mother's thing that she was trying. First of all, when I was eight, I suddenly thought, oh, my God, I got this amazing idea. I have to ask mother. And I said to her, how do we come here? How do we arrive on earth? And I thought it was 
something wonderful and dreamlike, and we were very special, the only ones. And she pointed to a chimney and she said, you see that nest there? Well, there usually, usually is a, a special bird, and it's an enormous bird, and it brings forth an egg from time to time. And you come <laughs> from that nest, you know. <laughs> Goodness. So it's like the stork bringing yeah, the baby no, sort of version of that. Yeah, yes. stay with me until... It's not funny. Yes. I mean, it, uh, it, was, it was her generation. Yeah. And so, so it's great that you, you've now written a song about puberty and the facts of life and how important it is to know that. Would you say that's part of the idea? Yes, I think it's important because it is frightening. I think it's probably frightening for the boy. In the old days, very, very old days, when Sigmund Freud was being read, men were taught that, well, you can read it in his, his writings, mm. men would come to him worried that women had these teeth and they would, they would end up with nothing. <laughs> 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 Don't they call it vagina dentata or something? Yeah, that's it's it. Like that's a, it. Yeah, sort of yeah. a phobia, like a mystical yeah, phobia. A pho- yeah, and they did have phobia. <laughs> it just shows how stupid we. I'm sure we we know nothing. I'm I'm absolutely convinced that we know nothing still, but we will grow. Hopefully, there'll be enough of us left on Earth to grow and learn things that really do exist and are true. I agree, I agree, we're still evolving. So let's have a listen to Carmine Vermillion. So Gillian, I'm anxious to hear more about your film work as well, because you were multi-talented and last time we spoke <laughs> about your early work. And of course, um, you were in Blow Up. Tell me the story behind that. Yes. Well, my first agent from Beat Girl, she had realised that there was a film by Antonioni called Blow Up that maybe I would be right for uh, Antonioni. And he was Italian and I came from France. So when I went to see him, I didn't think... I was going to work with him and I looked exceedingly pale and I was dressed in a sort of skin coloured clothes. We wore tights, they'd just begun, they were always fashionable to be white and my shoes were the colour of my skin. So I looked probably quite unearthly and we sat down, he was incredibly polite and we had a talk. I wasn't frightened of him because I knew, I knew what my future was going to be and it was going to be wonderful. At last, you know, my life was in my own hands. That's lovely. That's yes. Nice. So that's how he, he actually asked me a silly question, but a, a sweet one. He said, I'm staying here for now and I would like you to be able to come with me and show me all the clubs I should go to. And of course, I didn't know one. <laughs> so that's how innocent I was. 
And tell me about the shoot for that one. I'd like to know more about the experience of making it. Well, Jane and I, in a way, were quite similar. She was tall and I was much shorter than her. That was where the the dissimilarity was. We were terrified. And I remember when the scene came, she went all blotchy and red, like spots everywhere. And me... I didn't drink and I went into a sort of like a place, like a wine place, you know, and I said, um, I would like to buy a little bottle. It was just where you sell all sorts of alcohol. I said, the smallest bottle and the cheapest bottle of red wine, please. And I (laughs) drank it in the loo before the scene and I, nothing happened. I thought it happened immediately. So nothing happened. So I put my head up upside down and I shook my hair violently and I stood up and I felt rather giddy and I thought that's it that's how it feels and uh, I walked out very proud of myself and uh, Jane and I were sort of waiting in the wings and there were three cameras and it's a funny thing how Antonioni didn't talk very much at all he just looked and I didn't realize that actually he was a painter Uh, he began as a painter that's why he's got these beautiful colours. The shoes were, were painted for us. The clothes were painted wow. for us. And our makeup was done with wax crayon colours. So we were actually, for him, the continuity of his painting. And I had come to him, I was fair-haired. He made me very dark. And Jane, who had dark hair, he made blonde, fair And it suited us. It was wonderful. So when the scene was beginning, he said to us, very short way, you know, because the most important for him was the cameraman. He was always sitting with the cameraman and talking to the cameraman and composing his painting. And we had paper at the the end of the room, which again was drawing for him. And he said, when I say whatever he was saying in Italian, begin or start or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, you run, you run really fast and the scene will begin. And he said, you, 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 um, you go and you, you, you unroll the roll. And I was very fast and I got back, I got to the back of the roll of paper and I started unrolling as fast as possible, as fast as possible. And there was Jane on the other side. And, um, we were at three in the end, you know, and it was it, it it was in a way hilarious. I couldn't stop laughing, but at the same time, I was trying to grab the paper to hide behind because Jane was very clever. She was very strong, much stronger than me, but she was behind the paper. And I found that when I actually saw the film, I was the one who was actually bare. At one point, the paper was saying there was this girl and we see all of her body and I hadn't seen the film, you know. So I went to see the film and I was too shy to look at the scene. I was looking at people's (laughs) faces instead, you know. (laughs) What were their faces doing? (laughs) Staring, staring at the screen. And I remember, yeah, um, there was a, a cinema close by that's the one I went to, close by to the Royal Court. And 
At the Royal Court, they were going to do a play by David Story, and Robert Kidd was going to direct. He was a very young director. And the reason why he saw me for the part was because he'd seen Blow Up. Isn't that, it's so funny. Mm. Everything, everything is linked. Everything links. So where is the link to A Clockwork Orange here? Because as a film critic, obviously I have to ask you about this film. Yes. Um, I don't know. I think it was the person who was in charge of looking for actors. And he obviously knew about me. Well, I think it was rather cruel when you when you go and you're in a room and you're with all quite a few girls because I could see what what I did was I looked at the girl who came out of the room I was supposed to go into and each time I looked at the, the expression I could see absolute misery and shock oh, and I thought what is that so I went in rather curious and there was a, a man that was very very sweet incredibly polite and he said to me I'm awfully sorry but you're going to have to take the top of your clothes off you know just like a sweater and be in your bra and your and your your knickers you know but we're gonna have to do a film test like that and it's, it's was this Kubrick himself no it wasn't Kubrick wasn't into doing what he was into doing first of all was he wanted to know what the girls looked like, mm-hmm. which ones were chosen. He would choose from, I'd never had that before, from the film that this young gentleman was going to make of me. And mm-hmm. I had to do bus stop, the Marilyn Monroe part from the film. And I mm-hmm. thought that hilarious. I started laughing because I, I said, this is really odd. I'm in my underwear, right? I'm in my knickers and my bra and I'm reading Marilyn Monroe bus stop. He said, yes, I know it's it's strange, but don't worry, it'll be fine. And that's why when I came out, instead of being sad, I was I looked hilarious. <laughs> you didn't you feel vulnerable? Did you feel vulnerable at that oh, point? Oh, terribly right? vulnerable. Yeah. Incredible. I, I felt stupid. But the stupidity turned into this feeling of, of the whole thing being hilarious, of being completely surreal, completely odd. And I thought, well, this is the business, you know. But I was damned if I was going to make the other girls frightened because the others did. And I was not going to do that. I was thought, thinking to myself, good luck to the next one. And then I got called. I can't remember. Yes, it was a film test. I went directly from that to the film test. It was... A short film test. He wanted to see my profile, what I looked like. He had seen the film, the test from mm-hmm. the this film itself. This is Kubrick itself. now. Yeah, Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was yeah. he was very polite, very serious, and he was into uh, just looking, the eye. That was it. And how was the experience of the shoot for this film that then went on to become controversial, didn't it? Well, I was called in. I was told I had the part, and I was shooed into um, Vidal Sassoon, who was like the hairdresser then. And I found myself nose to nose with Faye Dunaway. And she got, she was terribly rude. And she said, I don't want anybody in this room with me. And I, <laughs> and I was expelled. <laughs> so oh, I went, yeah, I know, it's just like that. And I went downstairs. I didn't care. They changed my hair from my own to a wild carrot colour, but orange, an electric orange. 
that I'd never seen anybody have ever. So when I got back home, I have to say I got stares from women, and they were not nice. They were as if they wanted to pounce on me.、Oh. It produced violence. Yes, gosh. And I was living very close to Bieber's around that area in South Kensington, and so I felt insecure. So I went back home and I started washing my hair, and I washed my hair and I washed my hair until I became fair again. I mean, one shouldn't do that, but Kubrick didn't say a word. He he just thought it was okay. And the other girl I met. Was she had little violet lilac streaks in her hair, and it doesn't really show on screen. It, but if you look closely, she has a little bit of colour. But it wasn't like mine. You know, mine was you could see you. I, I would be a bus. You could see me a mile away.、Um, <laughs> yes, that's how I started. And how did you feel about the controversy around the film? Did that affect your life at all? No, not at all. Not at all. It actually took a year to come out, so it, it was forgotten. For the others, it was like a disaster. For Kubrick, he stayed at home. He got terribly insulted by the English. He got letters that saying that they would come to kill him, yeah, his family. Wasn't he? Terrible.、Uh, it was terrible. It was terrible. So nothing happened, and when it came out, it was perfectly fine. It wasn't forgotten, but I think it had less impact. So, on our first podcast, Gillian, you talked about your film Beat Girl, and you mentioned that it gave you the inspiration to record songs. Can you tell us about your first recording? Just before the holidays, and soon after having signed a contract with Eddie Barclay to be a singer. Now that was incredibly important for me because I loved singing, but I never, ever. Would have imagined that one day I, I, me, would be a singer. So I rushed to the studio, and then when I got inside the building and close to the door, I got nervous, wondering what was behind that door, and who was going to be there, and what I was going to be doing. Anyway, I opened the door, and who did I see? But Henri Salvador. Now I loved Henri Salvador. He was quite an unusual character because he could sing beautifully, and he could play the guitar like jazz amazingly well. And yet, at the same time, he was a comedian, and he made people laugh, and that's why he was successful. But I loved the other side of him when he was singing these romantic songs. He was very, very special, Henri. Patted his chair. He said,、uh, "Come close to me. We're going to be singing. We're going to be working together." So I sat by his side, wondering what that was going to be. And he said, "We are going to be doing a duet." And he played the first song, which was "Près de la Cascade," and it was just a very sweet, flirtatious song about two people who like each other. It was very sort of romantic, really, and I thought it was beautiful. I thought, God, I'm lucky there. So it didn't take long, and I was a little bit overthinking. Oh God, I could have spent a bit longer on that one, but I was very, very at the same time shy 
because it was my first time, and it was Henri Salvador. Then the second song came up, and he said to me, "You're going to have to put on an English accent." I thought, "Oh God, how's that going to work?" So he put the song on, and it was a cha-cha. Now cha-cha-cha in those days was very, very fashionable. Everybody did the cha-cha-cha. I thought it was quite stupid, actually. I didn't go for fashions. I really liked jazz. I liked Frank Sinatra. I liked loads of people, and I loved Leverly Brothers, etc. But Things like cha-cha was not my thing. Anyway, I listened to the song, and he says to me, "You're an English girl. You're hitching your way from Paris to the south of France because you don't have any money." Well, I understand that totally. That's exactly me. If I could be on my own and free of mother, I would have done my cha-cha stop. I would have brought up my finger and said, "Please, can you take me to the south of France?" So it, it wasn't a very big step for me. I enjoyed doing it. Well, it was fun, and you know, if you're doing something that's fun, you forget that you're recording, because I found myself looking up at Henri Salvador. In the end, I wasn't even thinking it was Henri Salvador. I thought of him as Henri, and it was a beautiful beginning, because everybody was leaving Paris. Two weeks later, Paris would be absolutely empty. And I lived near the Champs Elysees. You cannot imagine how beautiful Paris was in the summer. It was very hot, but in the summer when there was nobody, I thought it was exceedingly romantic. And when I lived in Nice, my dream was to one day get married. I was going to be seventeen and a half. The half was important because I thought that seventeen would be too early for my mother, and she would be very, very difficult. So, seventeen and a half, I would be in Paris on my honeymoon. But no, here I was in the studio with the wonderful Henri Salvador, which sounds equally romantic in many ways. I also want to hear more about Serge Gainsbourg. There was a TV program in France that was very well known, and it was called Tough Tough. Well, really, in the French accent, it's Tough Tough, which is very sweet. And、um, the person who was looking after me at Barclays, Jean Fernandez, said to me,、uh, "You're going to be singing a song that will be written by Serge Gainsbourg, and、uh, he wants to re- record it with you." When you go, just it's my advice: be careful, be very quiet,、uh, as a usual self, but be aware that he can suddenly change from a very charming man to a horror. So I arrived at his house. It was a lovely gate. I rang the bell. His door opened. It was in a courtyard, and very pretty. He came to the gate, and I was by then looking at the ground, thinking, if I don't catch his face、uh, and look at him, maybe he will, you know, just be normal, and we'll we'll just be able to work. Because sometimes, if you look at somebody,、um, it might—I don't know—I just didn't know if it might set him off, because Fernandez had worried me somewhat. So I follow him into the house. It's lovely. We go into the salon. And he's got his piano. He sits behind the piano,
and he says, I have a song here, and he starts playing it. I find, personally, that for me it's rather low, but I don't say a word, because I'm used to it. When I'm recording, I never ever had said, oh, I think it's too high or too low. I always sort of accommodated the the song I was given. So I did the same here. And um, when Serge had finished and I then sang the song for him, he said, hmm, yes, it's rather low. But you know what? I I like that. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's different to the way I expected you to sing because I sang with a higher voice, much higher. And he seemed very pleased. Then the next time I saw him, the television program called me and said, right, we have a date, you need to come and we'll be filming the the song. We just want to tell you that Serge can't drive, he doesn't know how to. So you just be, you know, normal. You, You don't make fun of him or anything, be very embarrassing. Just, just ignore that. So I'm supposed to go to a hairdresser called De Sange. He was like the number one in, in Paris. And of course, the girl who's doing my hair, washing it and, and combing it and everything, she, well, I've got very long hair. It goes down practically to my waist, really. And she said, well, I don't think we can have that, you know. It's not very elegant. So we're going to do something. So she bunches it up. And she's very clever because she makes me look as if I've got hair that is slightly longer than shoulder length. And I find that quite sweet and thinking to myself, well, maybe I'll do that in the future. I arrive on the on the, the avenue, which wasn't far from the Champs-Élysées. Beautiful weather and Serge is in the car because probably he didn't want to show that he didn't know how to drive. I don't know. But I did find him quite shy. So we rehearse a little bit, and he's crawling in that car. So they say, all right, we begin. So we begin. I sing the song, I'm in the car, and he's got his his arm behind my back, you know, on the seat of the car. And... Um, I'm thinking to myself, he seems to be all right. I mean, we're crawling, but he seems to be all right. Because actually, before that, I had sat on the bonnet, you see. And I had I had actually asked him if I could, um, if he would give me a lift. And while I was sat sitting on the bonnet, I wasn't actually looking at him because I was just as shy as him. And... Um, I was just, I think, bobbing my head around, you know, saying, oh, will you please take me to school? I'm terribly late and I'd be really grateful. And so he said, all right, well, you hop in. And so that's how it really, really starts. And so I I rush to the other side of the car and I get in. So I'm expecting a hiccup in the car. But no, he seems to be able to start the car gliding very elegantly. He doesn't go fast, but he's quite slow. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, what would the girl think? What would she be like? Well, she would be sort of uncertain. 
wondering where he's taking her because she's expecting him to drive off to school quickly because she's late. But no, he's he's quite slow. So I um I stop frowning and um he stops the car with a start and I get out. By that time I had nicked the keys from the car. That was the joke. And I walk around the car and I dangle the keys and I say to him, here are the keys, you see. I took them from you and I plucked them in the car and I walk off, feeling very proud of myself. And instead of feeling frightened of him, I, when I got out of the car, having nicked his keys, I felt... Well, of course, relaxed, but I thought he's nothing at all the way Jean Fernandez said about him. He seemed an absolute darling. Thank you, Gillian, for telling us about Serge. Now, how about Charles Aznavour? I was told that Aznavour was going to write some songs for me. Two things happened. Number one, I was terrified. When I went to school... I would listen to Aznavour on the radio and his voice was very special. I found him to be quite romantic in the sound of his voice and he was a professional and who was I? I was very new and I was quite shocked and surprised that I was actually singing. The thing is, I had a rhythm and I always sang in tune but I was still living in a Alice in Wonderland world, where extraordinary things were happening to me. I was told that I was supposed to go to a particular place and he was rehearsing. It was summer. And so he was on stage and probably rehearsing the orchestra. I can't remember the orchestra. I only remember him. And I was with Mother because Mother always went everywhere with me. I think this irritated as Navour. I can't remember him coming down from the podium and saying hello. I just remember being there for, I don't know, half an hour. And then the car came to collect us and we left. Later on, I was going to receive two songs. They were very French and I was scared of that. I didn't really feel that I could honour him. But anyway, he wanted to meet me because he wanted to know where my voice was, how high or how low. I went to meet him, and he seemed very warm. He looked you straight in the eyes, and he said, let's sit down, and I want to know where your voice is, how low or how high. I sat by Aznavour, and he was trying my voice, how high and how low. And he was so sweet, so kind, and so warm. And he looked at me, and we were eye to eye. He was not very tall. And there was a, it wasn't like with with Serge. With Serge Gainsbourg, I had a stool next to the piano, and he had a stool in front of the piano. With Aznavour, we sat next to each other and that made a huge difference sort of more intimate and you're less scared you're less shy it went well and then I got up because of course I had to leave the room was quite small and I noticed that we were the same height 
which meant that there was a form of intimacy. And when you looked into his eyes, they were very large. They were full of kindness. For me, at least, a beautiful meeting. And then next time I was in the studio, I had been sent two songs. One was called Jean-Lou and the other one, Ne crois surtout pas. And both of them were incredibly French. I wasn't crazy about the music. I was really taken aback by the lyrics because I never spoke about mother. I couldn't understand how he knew me so, so well. In Jean-Loup, he knew everything about my situation, not being able to ever see or go out with a boy. Ne crois surtout pas was about a girl who said, oh, I am not at all what you think I am. You think you're going to go out with me? Well, you know, think again. Now, as Naval sang that song, but in a different way, it suited him as a man. Jean-Loup, he couldn't. So when I was recording Jean-Loup, I needed to jazz it up somehow. I loved the lyrics, but I, as I said, the music was not my thing, and I was a bit surprised. I don't know. But anyway, with Jean-Loup, I invented the the jazzy beginning, which was do 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 da do da do da, because it was natural. And I thought if I did that, it would suddenly fall into another category. With the second song, Ne crois surtout pas, I couldn't do a thing. As Navour sang Ne crois surtout pas, but he couldn't sing Jean-Loup. As Navour didn't like to lose anything that he ever wrote. He was very, in a way, miserly like that. It's really saving everything that you have because he wrote both songs. He came to the studio and he was behind the glass. You're in the studio in this big room and then there's a glass room. It's high up above and you see the engineer and you can't hear them talking and I noticed Aznavour, I did ask specifically that Aznavour was there and he came. And I thought that was so wonderful of him because I wanted to honour him and I was so scared because I wasn't really French in my singing. My singing was American English. I had a rhythm. I could sing jazz, I could sing all sorts of things, but the real French was not me. And every time... We'd done a take or something. We didn't do that many takes. But every time I would ask Aznavour, is that all right? Is that the way you want it? I really liked him enormously, and I think I would have loved to have him as a friend because in his eyes I saw that he knew everything about the world. And later on I read about him and he had had a very tough time escaped with his sister in a war. He was a very exceptional human being, and I always feel blessed that he wrote for me. At the same time, I wish I could have done better. Wow, it sounds like he had an amazing impact on you and another incredible person to have worked with. Now, of course, we've talked plenty about your music in film, but you're also a very talented artist, Gillian. Tell me a bit more about your art. It's um, a safety valve, I think. Well, actually, when I was in Germany, I was 
seven and a half, I'd come out to my last convent. I'd said to mother, I'm never going back ever to a convent. And so she took me Easter time and the snow was very deep. It was called Schwarzwald. It's in German. It's like the German forest. It's the Black Forest area. And um, there, there was a jewelry shop and I missed the sea and the water. I had this eureka idea that if she went inside the shop, she would catch the attention of that one shopkeeper. It was a tiny shop. And I could slide my way to the the window and take the ring, you see, because it was an aquamarine and it was the color of the sea and I missed the sea. I was nuts when I think of it. And suddenly I realized this, this was a very stupid dream because what would I do with mother? I'd go back into convent, first of all. And secondly, uh, you know, you don't do that. So I didn't say anything to her. I just looked longingly at at the ring. And then we came to the shop just next to it, which was a hardware store. And outside, there was a most beautiful box. It was a pelican. It was all gouache. And I'd never seen colours, never seen colours like that. They were all pure colours. The box was open. It was a shiny, glossy white. They were round in big round circles. I fell in love with it. And I thought, this is me. So my mother bought me these colours, which I never touched, because I thought it was too beautiful. The colours were just too beautiful. But I had this thing in my mind that this was what I was going to do. And when I went to Nice, I began to draw when I had my friends. I drew myself, and I drew the boy I fell in love with. He was... The, the brother of these two sisters. Uh, he was 14 mm -hmm. and I was 12. But I didn't know how to draw boys. But I drew my, my body, myself. Right. And my mother would never leave me alone. She was always looking at what I was doing. So she was looking over my shoulders. And so I had a method that I would draw the outline. And when I thought she wasn't looking, I would draw something like, the nipples, the little <laughs> tummy button, yeah. and I would draw just, let's say, uh, I love you. Mm -hmm. And it was destined for the boy. I mean, I was never going to give it to him, but it was just drawings of, I don't remember quite, but they were just drawings, my personal private drawings. I began to draw and imagine, you know, and dress her up in a bathing suit, and I would then colour the bathing suit. And so it was all black. You couldn't see anything, just a black one-piece bathing suit. So that was my second secret for my mother. She didn't know anything. And then um, when I was in Paris, I was being interviewed. The interviewer asked me, tell me, if um, you weren't going to be a star as you are, and I thought, oh, God, what's she talking about? <laughs> she said, what would you have done? And uh, I said, I would be, I'd be painting. And I saw mother's eyebrows go up because her mother was a painter. So the interviewer said, well, well, draw something for me. And I'd never done that before. I'd never drawn in front of somebody. So I, I took the pencil, what well, is actually a pen, and I took a, the paper from the hotel and I did a very, very, very quick sketch of myself. 
And I've got the, the photograph of it, and I should put it online because it's a spitting image of myself. I don't know how I did it. Wonderful. Uh, and, yeah, and the actual, the hair begins, and it looks like a crown, and all it is is the address of the hotel, and I got my long hair. And I thought that I was ugly, you know, and I drew myself. But actually, it's me. And how strange it is that if you do something in the equivalent of three minutes flat, far less than actually than that, because I was so shy, drawing in front of somebody was, you know, the infringement, not only was privacy, but something that was mine, only mine. And I wasn't certain of myself either. But I've I've seen I've seen it. I don't know how it would look on online because it's from the newspaper. I mean, it's from a magazine. We should share it though. I think it would be great to tie it in with this podcast so the listeners can have a look at it on social media. Yeah. And um, and I I'm, I'm interested to know because you said that you were very shy and you felt it was an infringement of your privacy, but you still drew it for her. Why did you Why did you do that? It's simply because I I thought grown ups were grown ups and children or you know were children or whatever, and um. Being a convent girl, I was actually quite strictly brought up. My grandmother was actually very strict too. So you did what you were told by adults, I suppose. <laughs> yes, I was th- that perfect child, you know, boring, perfect child. Very secretive. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Far from boring, I'm sure. And, and once you'd um, drawn that picture, where did that lead? Did that make you more inclined to share your art? No, not at all. It, it made me feel independent. Ah. It made me understand that I could tell a story by drawing. Wonderful. So in Lily, yeah, in, in the Lily that you see, uh, it has been cropped. But the Lily that, that I've done, she looks more like a warrior. It's really, a, uh, I wrote a poem to go with it. And it's about what you're told in life. Mm-hmm what's going to happen to you and the girl just wanting to not to be told anything and to be able to do what she wants to do to be independent but she's she's told you know walk the straight line I don't have the poem with me but if I did I would I would give it to you um it's very short but it's very telling about the girl I was and every single drawing that I've done is incredibly meticulous, very small, actually, really got to look up closely. Mm -hmm. And it's quite complex, but each one is part of that girl, Lily, who can only say no privately. And the privacy is everything for, I think, for teenagers to grow up. But for me, it's in my drawings. You know, I might do big paintings, but I know exactly why this thing is there and not somewhere else and what I'm up to. So in fact, I'm not doing work that is that you see when you go to shows or museums. They're very, very personal. And when people listen to your album and look at your pictures, what are you hoping to evoke in them? What kind of feelings are you hoping they're going to feel? I want them to feel safe. I want them to Mm. go into a dream and feel what I would have loved to have felt, just safe. And 
for them to know it's a real story about a real girl and her dreams and what she thinks of in her privacy and the fact that she can say that she loves this boy and she talks about things, the private thing of the change in her life when she makes love with this boy, which is in her, in, it didn't happen in my life, but it was something that I was imagining. I, I didn't even know what boys' bodies were made of. I never looked at them. I was that trained, you know, not to do this, not to do that. Uh, I think I probably was in my late teens when I had my first experience, very late teens. So Gillian, before we finish, I would like another showbiz story from you because you've got some great ones. Come on. Um, I went to the Christmas, my first Christmas party. Eddie Barclay was, was, uh, was famous for his Christmas parties. And they put a record on, which I, I knew by heart. It was a scat. And it was Mel Torme's wife. And I, it was by the piano. And I just stood there by the piano and I absolutely you know, note perfect. And Duke Ellington was there and I, I, I was in a world of my own. And he said to me, is that you? And I said, of course not. How, how come you know? You don't know who she is? And he said, no, tell me who she is. So I told him. So I don't know who that is. He said, let's have a talk. And we went off. There was a sofa and I had a half an hour talk with Duke Ellington. He was asking everything about me. I sang Satin Doll for him, my favourite. We were oblivious to the rest. And then in the end he said, well, I think I have to go. But first of all, um, just tell me how old you are. And I said, I'm 16. He said, wow. And he went off. (laughs) Gosh, that's funny. How telling. Well, listen, Gillian, I feel like I want to hear about some more parties in the next episode. I think that would be a really, really great thing because you have certainly lived and you've got great stories. Thank you so much again for doing the podcast. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you today and I look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Gillian Hills, A Life in Art, Film and Music was presented by me, Anna Smith, from the Girls on Film podcast. The programme was produced by Russ Williams and executive producers are Tony Byrne and Stuart Young. Copyright Gillian Hills, 2021.